Thank you for listening to the Writers Guild of Alberta podcasts. The following episode was recorded in 2020 as part of the WGA's online reading series, sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. The audio quality may differ from recording to recording. We want to thank the authors and hosts for their permission to share these audio-only episodes with you, and thank the Rosé Foundation again for their generous support. Hello, and welcome to the Writers Guild of Alberta online reading series. I am Susan Carpenter, and I am the treasurer for the Writers Guild of Alberta, and we have the pleasure of being here tonight with Doreen Vanderstoop to read from her new novel, Watershed. Hello, friend. Hello. How are you? Cheers. Good. Cheers to you, my friend. Good to see you. You too. I'd rather be doing this on the back deck, but since it's pouring rain here in Calgary and it's a pandemic, this is the next best thing. So it is. Um, and just, just to, before we continue, just want to acknowledge that our program this evening takes place on the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 people, which includes the Blackfoot nations of Siksikapigani and Gainai, the Dene of Sutina, and the Stony Nakoda of Bears, Pachiniki, and Wesley First Nations. We also walk in the footsteps of the Métis people of Region 3, Alberta. We are all treaty people. May we live with respect for this land and between all nations. Well said. Cheers again. And I need to thank the Rosa, Rosa sorry, Foundation because without their support, we would not be able to bring readers and writers together for online readings. So thank you to the Rosa Foundation. And I am lucky to say that I knew you when your book was just a baby. So um, we actually met when I put an ad in Right Click, which was Writer Guild of Alberta's online newsletter to start a writing group here in Northwest Calgary. So I have had the pleasure of watching you go from writing short stories to musician, to oral storyteller, to novelist. So congratulations on the publication of your first book, Watershed Through Freehand Books. Thank so how does you that feel? so much. Out there? It's, uh, it feels wonderful. And I want to thank you because you did help me in those very early days of Watershed to, uh, to give me critiques along the way when we met in our little writing group. That was wonderful. It was I also, great. Want to, also just want to acknowledge your literary prowess because you are also a writer in your, <laughs> in your own right, so to speak. Um, you have a novel, you have a two volume novel that you're just trying to find a home for, the YA novel. You have two novels that you're in the process of editing. You have multiple short story credits and you also teach for the Sari Selecki School of Writing. And you did all of that over the years while raising five boys. So I'd say, well, thank you, you Susan. <laughs> well, thank you. But I was just holding you back. So. <laughs> so I'm very happy to say that Watershed is out there in the world now. And I really enjoyed your launch last month. So that was awesome. Thank and you. may you get out on the road sometime soon, hopefully. Um, but I do think that I need to um, give everybody a few notes on the accolades that Watershed has been getting. And I love following your husband on social media because he is your biggest fan. And I see that you again made the bestseller list here in town. So awesome. So and thank, thank you, Mike. <laughs> thank you, Calgary. Thank you, yeah. Calgary. Exactly. And thank you to Mike for being your biggest cheerleader because I, you know, that's how I get all my news. Thank but, you to Mike. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's wonderful. 
Um, but I wanted to just read a few of, a very few of the accolades before we jump right in. So the Globe and Mail named your novel one of 16 best new reads. CBC touted it as a spring must read. You've made Calgary and Alberta bestseller lists. Toronto Star called it terrifying and believable and powerful and thought provoking. Calgary Herald said Watershed is an urgent cli-fi tale. And the Book Publishers Association of Alberta shortlisted your novel for the New Alberta Book Club. That's a lot. <laughs> but what a timely book. I mean, doesn't 2020 feel like the apocalypse? Tragically, uh, yes, it does. Unfortunately, it just goes to show how vulnerable we are to the natural forces on this earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're, you've got a crystal ball or something. I don't know what's going on there, but, uh, but I wanted to ask you what your favorite post-apocalyptic book is. Well, my favorite series is Margaret Atwood's Mad Adam series. Those are incredible books. And again, sort of a near, near future feel to them. So it feels very immediate and plausible and real. Love mm -hmm. that about them. But, uh, but I think my favorite would have to be Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Um, love that book. Thought it was so, so beautifully written. And just that that little bit of hope at the end. Um, yeah, I thought it was lovely. And movie was great too. So. It was, and I actually didn't read the book. I saw the movie. And I'm super glad to report that your book does not have any cannibalism in it. Because that movie was intense. So, But it does, it does end on a note of hope, just like Watershed does. So that... Um, I think since we are actually talking about reading, we should just get to it. But what I'm gonna do is you're gonna read excerpts. I'm going to intersperse my questions. I'm also gonna keep an eye on our YouTube chat. And I would like the audience to chime in with anything they would like me to ask Doreen. And I will try to get to as many as I can in our time together. So if you would take it away, Doreen. Thank you, Susan. And I'm just gonna start from the top. So page one, chapter mm -hmm. one. The faint hiss of air brakes sounded above the wind. Willa Van Bruggen looked eastward and shielded her eyes against the May morning light. The sun lay low in the sky, a beautiful, terrible celestial raspberry, colored by dust and by smoke drifting in from forest fires in northern Washington State and British Columbia. Crystal Canada's double water tanker hove into view at the top of the hill, the shine of its silver barrels dulled by the dusty air breaks again, intermittent now, like sharp intakes of breath, as the rig inched down toward the Van Bruggen farm. Drivers had to keep their speed in check so water surges didn't send the vehicles careening out of control. Last night's conversation with her only son had been running through Willa's mind all morning. Daniel told her to share the news about getting an interview with Crystal Canada. Daniel said, I'll be working for the Federal Crown Corporation, keeping Southern Alberta from turning into Death Valley. Daniel shook his head as if his point were obvious and he didn't understand why she was, wasn't getting it. She wasn't. She wanted him back, needed him to help them keep the farm afloat. Daniel tried again. It's like a banker getting a job with the Bank of Canada or an art dealer with the National Gallery of Canada. Crystal operates for profit at arm's length from government, but the feds guarantee the cash flow in case of financial trouble. They won't let the water pipeline fail. As he spoke, her mind drifted back to a time when she and young Daniel crept into the loft of the hay barn to check out a new litter of kittens. She marveled at how gently his little fingers stroked their silky fur. But he was strong-willed too, always arguing that he was ready to take on the next big farm job. 
Back then, she couldn't imagine he'd ever leave. He told her the job with Crystal would be a dream come true. Smile, Willa commanded herself. Congratulate him, but the muscles around her mouth refused to budge. The phone screen relayed the hopeful twitch of his eyebrows. Aren't you happy for me, he asked. I can finally start to tackle my debt. Of course I'm happy, she said, the words like a mouth full of sand. Daniel ran a hand across the top of his head and let it nest in his thick hair as yellow as ripe wheat. His blue eyes shone. My master's is paying off, he said, and I've made great contacts. No one is hiring, but my friend Percy Dickinson got me this, br this interview. Brilliant guy, double majored in political science and hydrogeology. Now he's a big shot in the provincial water ministry. I'm glad you can get on top of your debt, she said. Her tiny image in the corner of the screen looked glad, didn't it? I just wish you were coming home. Daniel's face disappeared as he tilted the phone away. She saw the dingy ceiling tiles in his basement apartment. Then his face filled the screen again. Listen to me, Mom. I'm a professional now. I don't want to fight dust and wind on a few lousy acres of dried out farmland. I want to help everyone. I've been looking for a year. A lot of grads from the class of 2057 are still out of work. They'd kill for this opportunity. I can't make ends meet with half shifts at the breakfast barn. Neither spoke for a full, uncomfortable minute. I'm staying in Calgary, Daniel said. Ouch. <laughs> you throw so many grenades at poor Willa in the first chapter. You throw us right into her journey, really. And writers, they're always told to put their protagonists in a tree and throw rocks at them but a lot of us struggle to actually make our characters hurt. So I'm wondering how hard was that for you writing the book to make Willa hurt, but that sets her on her journey, right? It uh, wasn't as hard as you might think because I actually didn't like Willa all that much at the start. She, I found her, I found her kind of prickly and hard and uh, in just, just really intransigent in, in her approach to Daniel and to life. And so um, I think that made it a little bit easier. <laughs> so yeah. uh, as time went on, I got to know her better. And uh, and actually my, my work with the amazing Barb Howard, who um, was the editor for Freehand on this novel, she really helped me. She asked such uh, really pertinent and insightful questions about uh, all my characters, um, but particularly Willa. And, uh, and that helped me see some other sides of her and some other motivations that maybe I hadn't thought about before. So yeah. I think that, uh, that I, I started to like her a little bit more and uh, the more we worked um, on shaping that character. Uh, yeah. So that, right. and it sounds like she became more 3d, the more, you know, you worked with her and, and on her journey. Definitely. I mean, we, we, we all come as a package. We're not just one thing. We, uh, you know, we have our prickly sides and, and we have our, uh, you know, points that we are definitely not going to bend on. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, we also have our softer sides that come out for certain people. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely it's, it's good to explore all the dimensions of your characters. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like plot might have come out of character. Would you say that you are a plotter or a pantser who just sort of intuitively works their way through a first draft. Yeah, those those are such interesting terms. Um, I would I, I would choose a new term. I would call myself a percolator. So, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so 
I, I just find that when I do start writing, and I guess, you know, that is a bit of seat of the pants kind of writing as well, you could say. Um, but I, I really love to explore the story, you know, through the writing. I probably write a lot more than I actually keep in the end. Um, but it helps it helps that story percolate in my in my heart and in my head. And, and I find that's that's a good way to kind of figure out um, where things are going. I also do a lot of talking about that. And you're speaking about my beautiful, wonderful husband, Mike. We mm -hmm. did a lot of we do a lot of hiking. Mm -hmm. And so I would often talk about plot points with him on the trail. And mm -hmm. uh, and God love him. All he wanted was a little peace and quiet. And I would just attack him with these plot points. And say, yeah, but what do you think about this? And, and what about, you know, what, what if this happens? And and so that, that was always. So, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of percolation, even on the hiking trail. Well, that's interesting, because even when you're not working on it, you're working on it. Right. Yeah. So true. And I'm sure you you know this so, so well for yourself. It's uh, it's it's always it's always back there. All those little wheels are always turning when you're when you're working on a project. Like you were you're insane. <laughs> it's, all, it's always in there somewhere. <laughs> There's a little bit of that, too. Definitely. <laughs> well, I think we uh, we should probably get to excerpt number two. Um, okay. Um, I had maybe one more question. I am keeping an eye on the audience as well, but I'm going to sneak one more of my questions in. Uh, so did you know the ending uh, when you sort of started writing it and you were kind of writing toward that ending and then Willie's journey changed that ending or? Definitely. That, that ending was not, uh, was not certainly not foreseen by me. Um, that really developed through that percolation process and through that exploration um, yeah, definitely. It, it, it evolved that the whole story of all those things went on and it, and it was, it was kind of an interesting reveal to me. I, I, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't written on any sheets on my wall for sure. It, it definitely mm -hmm. was it felt very organic the way that it came mm -hmm. out of the story itself as it went along. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think we will move on to your second reading and I'll keep checking the chat. Okay. All right. Only the tick-tock of the Dutch wall clock in the living room broke the silence in the house. Willa thought about the federal government's upcoming buyout program. Landowners in southern Alberta would have from July to December 2058 to cash in their land, 25% of its current assessed value, itself a fraction of land values a decade ago. She couldn't betray her father by selling his land for a pittance. Still, the word foreclosure reared in Willa's mind, bucking all other thoughts away. She tensed her stomach muscles to quell an eruption of sick dread. She anchored her hands on the edge of the table, fixated on her tea mug with its picture of a bluebird resting in a twist of jade vines. Her headache, which had subsided, crept back in. As she watched, one of the vines became a snake. It writhed and wound its body around the delicate bird, squeezing. Willis swiped the mug away. Tea sprayed her leg in the floor. The cup smashed on the tiles. Willa gaped at the dark splatters and ceramic shards. With trembling hands, she retrieved a broom from beside the fridge and swept up the mess. She put the broom away and leaned her back against the fridge, looked at the floor streaked with tea stains where she'd swept. It's only an interview, she'd said to Daniel. If you don't get the job, you should come home for a while. We can build another barn, buy more goats, up our milk output. Mom, he said, I gotta go. Willa had stared at the screen until call ended, stopped flashing. She decided to follow up with a text. Sorry, Daniel, it feels like we're losing you. Then she stopped, backspaced the message away. 
As a toddler, Daniel had run around the barn yelling, cha-cha, his way of saying cat. Willis sighed at the memory of her boy who grew up and left. Her father had passed away. Her mother and sister had moved to Calgary. An image flitted through her mind, her mother fingering the four-way medal on a chain around her neck. She never took it off, trusted the fervent prayers and devotion it inspired to fix everything. But the cross hadn't fixed anything. This land had once belonged to Willa's industrious paternal grandparents, determined immigrants from the Netherlands. Her father had persevered to keep the Van Bruggen dream alive. Willa knew what she had to do, unflinching devotion to the land and working as hard as her forebears had, that made sense. Drought and strange visions be damned. Mm, thank you. I um, have to say that it was kind of scary to witness Alberta in um, you know post-apocalyptic 2058 but it was also a bit of a thrill to read about our home. So I'm wondering how you envisioned Alberta in 2058. Well, it started off with Willa in her front yard in front of her log house. She's the one who kind of drove, uh, drove me forward all the time. It's like she was calling to me to tell her story. So it definitely started there, but, but it took a tremendous amount of research at the start to figure out how I was going to project the story onto the future. So so I read people like Robert William Sanford and uh, Kevin Van Tegum writes beautifully about, about this place. Mm -hmm. David Schindler is a, a renowned water expert who worked at the University uh, of Alberta for many, many years. And, uh, and so I read all of those, those amazing authors and they are my heroes because they write about the facts about the here and now. Um, if there was ever a time to trust scientists, I guess, you know, this is it definitely. But I, I really relied on those sources to tell me about what was happening now and what the risks were for the future. And that's how I was able to project my story on, onto the future. At one point, I did have to stop researching because, of course, you can imagine that the, the sources are absolutely endless. And at, a, at one point, I thought, okay, you've got to stop procrastinating and sit down and write this novel. So yeah. uh, there, there was uh, amazing material out there. Um, Bob Sanford, uh, one of my one of my favorites. He's written upwards of thirty books on mm -hmm. uh, glaciers and and water. He's a water expert who works with the UN. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, he's an amazing resource. He, I'm actually I'm lucky enough. Can't even believe I'm saying mm -hmm. this, but we're actually doing a program together for the Calgary Public Library next week mm -hmm. on July 9th. Um, oh. We're we're going to do a talk about our vanishing glaciers, and so. Oh, wow would invite all our viewers to join us for that discussion he's going to talk about you know his his science and we're going to do a few more readings from watershed and talk about our disappearing water resources so wow that's pretty cool so in order so it's it's sorry you said july the 9th and so i would just go on as a library member and sign up? Is that how I would? Okay. Yeah, Any, anybody who's a member of uh, Calgary Public Library can register for the event. You just go to their website and, and look for our vanishing glaciers. Okay, well, you're becoming a pro at these online meetings. <laughs> aren't, aren't we all, Susan? <laughs> yeah, sadly we are. Uh, but I, I did put makeup on for you and I am wearing pants. So, <laughs> different than Zoom calls. <laughs> you're the best. You're the best. <laughs> but anyway. Um, back to your book. So um, I found a lot of the the scenes between Willa and Daniel 
really stressful, frankly, because you know you're you're a mother of of sons. I'm a mother of sons, and was that stressful for you? I mean, you needed the tension in the book, but was that stressful for you to write those scenes? It, it was. I mean, as as a parent, um, you know, we have difficult discussions with our children. I mean, it, it happens, but uh, those aren't the best moments, obviously, between us. So, um, so yeah, definitely, it was. Um, it was. It was. It was hard to write that because of my own boys. I mean, I we we've had our struggles, especially um, you know when they have wanted to go off and do things that uh, that maybe I didn't agree with. I mean, the the green hair mascara was one thing, but uh, wanting to ride a motorcycle, you know, was quite another. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's a more difficult discussion. But you know, I, I um, we were never ones to stand in the way. Um, you know, we really tried not to be helicopter parents. So so we mm. always you know, we talked about this, the safe way of doing that and that he needed to wait until he was 18 and all of that. So mm -hmm. it's, it's good to have those kinds of open discussions. And, um, and that's something that obviously Willa struggled with in in this book that, you know, getting to that point, because if we're too focused on ourselves and too inward looking, that that can impede the, the good communication that we can have with others. Well, and, you know, you raise the kids and, and give them lots of love. But as a parent, your job is to eventually let them go. But for Willa, she also, they need help on the farm, right? So there's an extra layer of not wanting to let him go there that I think comes through really well in the book. Um, uh, it was very stressful to read. So thank you for that. <laughs> so I think we should probably get to our next um, reading and uh, because we have uh, about 45 minutes all together. So I wanna make sure that we get to all of your readings and then a few more questions. Okay, sounds good. So for this uh, section, uh, you need to know that Sophie is Willa's sister. Mom's gone, Willa, Sophie said immediately in answering. Willa stared at her sister's face on the screen. Nothing moved. She registered the window in her peripheral vision. The dusky trees in the shelter belt seemed frozen their stripped tips arched midsway by the wind as in a photograph. She hadn't seen or heard from her mother in years, but her shadow had always skulked on Willa's horizon, out of reach but inescapable. Sophie said her, hung, her life hung on a, by a thread these last few days. I took her to Victoria General on Tuesday and her condition plummeted. The trees began to move again, slowly, as if the wind were grinding back into gear. Are you okay? Willa asked. Yeah, I'm tired. Sophie looked as though she might elaborate, but then added, really tired. I'm sorry for you, Soph. Sophie said, I know you are. Listen, Willa, mom made a big donation to the Pancreatic Cancer Foundation before she went into the hospital, but she left me a little. I'd like to gift some to you. I know you guys are having a heck of a time out there with the drought. Willa gave a wry chuckle. <laughs> I doubt mum would want you to help me with any of that money. Sophie hesitated a mere fraction of a second. Every tiny gesture that accompanied the delay, the nervous shift of her eyes, the movement of muscles around her mouth registered on Willa's keen radar. Willa said, she told you not to give me any, didn't she? No, of course not, Sophie said. I mean, no, she didn't. You don't need to be the buffer anymore, Sophie. Sophie's face crumpled. I'm sorry, Willa, but that doesn't mean I have to follow her rules. Whatever went on between you and mom doesn't affect you and me. Willa shook her head. You're good to offer, but I wouldn't feel right about it. You took care of her. That's why she wanted you to have it. 
She and I were doomed from the start. It's nobody's fault. Shit happens in families. Who's taking care of you? My friend Jenny is here, Sophie said. She's staying with me until after the funeral. I'm going to be fine. Thanks, Willa. The pitch of the last two words brought an echo to Willa's mind. She noted again the uncanny likeness in looks and voice between Sophie and the Marilyn she remembered. Thanks, Willa. The last two words her mother had ever said to her. Marilyn had thanked Willa for allowing 10-year-old Daniel to visit her in Calgary before she moved with Sophie to Victoria. Sophie was still recuperating from valley fever then. At its height, the virus had spread to her brain. She'd barely survived, and her mother wanted out of dusty Alberta. And don't feel bad about not coming to the funeral, Sophie said. I know there are lots of reasons why that wouldn't work. Something pinched Willa's gut, not guilt, not regret, just the cold absence of familial duty. I love you, sis, Willa said. Call any time. Just before she signed off, Sophie planted a kiss on her fingers and turned them to Willa. Willa looked out at the trees where she had just seen her father, her mother, dead. If she believed in such things, she might think they had found each other again on the other side, whatever that meant. She was more interested in the living. How often had she looked out this very window to see Calvin and Daniel returning to the house, smiling broadly? Once, teenage Daniel reached up and tried to fling his arm companionably around the shoulders of his lanky dad. Calvin laughed hardly and crouched down to accommodate the gesture. Parents always wanted their children to get the best of both of them. Daniel had inherited Calvin's calm, capable demeanor. What had she given him? Loyalty? Apparently not. Thank you. So I love the line, shit happens in families, because at this point, Willa has had a lot of, you know what. <laughs> but did you plan the parallel between Willa and her mother? Because she, she seems to have some of the same qualities and, and maybe that's why they never got along. Yeah, that kind of that happened uh, organically too. But um, but I mean, we we are not just one. As I said, we're not just one thing or another. And we also we also get different things from each of our parents. Um, not to mention the whole nature thing versus the nurture. So mm -hmm. so it was interesting to explore the kind of qualities, the kind of traits that that Willa would have gotten from her mother and from her father, and mm -hmm. and how you know that would have put her at odds with her mother sometimes because. Sometimes we can't get along very well with those who are just, you know, that much alike, right, to us, mm -hmm. that much like yeah. us. So right. that kind yeah. of, yeah, that kind of, um, and, and it, it, was, it was also interesting to study the intergenerational relationships and because her father has a very different influence on her than he, he in fact, has on her son, Daniel. And uh, mm -hmm. so that, that also kind of affected the dynamics, uh, you know, between uh, between Willa and Daniel as well. So it's, uh, you know, families are complex, complex things. They are, and a whole lot of, you know, what happens in families. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I liked your idea that um, we do want kids to inherit the best of both of us. And so what parts would you say Willa got um, from her dad and who is Daniel the most like? I think I know the, the answer to that, but I'll let you Tell me what you think. Well, I, and I and I think um, I mean Willa is very loyal, and I think she definitely got that from uh, from her her dad for sure. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so that that's, you know, that's the good quality that she got from him. And in terms of what Daniel got, um, yeah, I, I guess he certainly, uh, certainly got Willa's determination. Um, mm -hmm. He's certainly not as prickly as she is. So I, I think he kind of got the best of both worlds there, actually, from his grandpa and from, uh, from Willa. Yeah. And of course, that calm demeanor from from, from Calvin. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I, I like Calvin. I, I I thought he'd be a, a good guy to go for a beer with. <laughs> so I think we should probably move on to your next one, and then we will ask a few more questions. Okay, so the next reading is about Daniel. And uh, so, uh, so yeah, this is uh, Daniel and his uh, landlady. Daniel woke easily to a soft but insistent knock at his door. He hopped out of bed and threw on his robe. He'd never mastered the art of deep sleep the way his father had. His mother used to marvel that Calvin Brooks slept the sleep of the dead until the alarm brought him back to life. How can anyone's soul be that placid, she'd asked his dad once. He'd grinned and said, clear conscience. Opa Gerard called the way Dan and his mother slept, has a slap, hair's sleep, brief and light. Hello, dear, Mrs. Winstead said, smiling as he opened the door. Do you think you could fetch my water for me today, please? Dan had fetched her water every Sunday at one o'clock since he'd moved into her basement suite two years earlier. For the last month, she'd asked him practically every day if he'd be going to get it. He'd given up on reminding her of their arrangement. He hoped she wasn't spending fretful hours on Sunday mornings wondering where her next drop would come from if he happened to be at work instead of within earshot of her anxious knocking. Be happy to, ma'am, Daniel replied. Mrs. Winstead tilted her head and curled up the corners of her mouth. You're a true gentleman, dear. Dan opened. Dan felt Opa's bone-deep influence on him again. With your hat in hand, you can get through the whole land, he always said, a phrase directly translated from Dutch. And that meant civility earns you the keys to the kingdom. To Gerard Van Bruggen, nothing beat. Good adage. Is one o'clock okay? Dan asked Mrs. Winstead. Oh, yes, dear, she answered. That would be fine. He thought she looked more pasty than usual. He suspected she wasn't eating much fresh food. Of course, the moratorium she'd given him on his rent wasn't helping her. The staple in Calgary grocery stores was bread made from barley grown in irrigated Saskatchewan and central Alberta fields. Potatoes and other thirsty crops had to be abandoned when southern Alberta's groundwater supply started running dry. Dan wrote a paper on the topic in his first undergrad year. Some farmers resisted a measure like switching crops as if their own arteries were spliced with the roots of their favorite plants. Mrs. Winstead clutched the railing as she hobbled back upstairs. Dan thought her arthritic knees must be bothering her. He closed the door to his basement suite. His mind began to churn as it had the night before, which had made falling asleep in the first place a three-hour toss-and-turn ordeal. Perhaps he could make a real difference by blowing the whistle on a plot to send water south of the border. But how? Didn't he need gadgets to spy on Crystal? A pen that blew up your enemy after three clicks, a spike umbrella, a trick briefcase with a rifle, 20 rounds of ammo and a throwing knife hidden inside. Dan's self-image turned on a dime these days from worldly activist to artless hick. The artless hick made himself toast and between bites, picked over his meager wardrobe to tease out another shirt and pair of pants that would suffice for an office job. Thank you. I like the artless hick. <laughs> so when I was reading the book, 
it was interesting because it's almost half and half told from Daniel's and Willa's third person point of view. So do you consider them both main characters? I do, even though um, we start with Willa and end with Willa. Um, I mean, Dan Dan is very much, uh, you know, in, in one of the second last scenes of the book. And and definitely she recalls him in the first. So definitely the, the two of them um, are, are equal. And it's the tension between them, I think, that really creates the story. Um, the tension between rural and urban and, um, you know, between her being proud of her farm roots and, and him kind of thinking he is a bit of a hick and, and trying to shed, you know, that, that self-image of this, this kind of naive farm boy that he does through the book. So there's always that, uh, that bit of tension between them, um, not to mention, you know, the ambition, the tension between their ambitions. Well, and he's also talking about, you know, I'm here in the city paying off my debt. And meanwhile, she's drowning in debt, right? Trying to save their home, which he doesn't consider a home anymore. So yeah, and that actually kept me turning the pages. And so how did you weave the plots together though? Because it seemed like you would jump back and forth between them at just the right moment so that, you know, I it wasn't too long since I'd heard from the last character, but it did keep me turning the pages. Well, that's where the plotting comes in. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. that, that was actually really tricky. That was probably some of the most difficult work is figuring out how to fit those puzzle pieces together. Um, and especially in terms of the timeline, because I wanted it to flow, you know, fairly well from one section into the other. I didn't want to go back in time when I was going from Willa to Daniel. So, so that, you know, definitely helped to put sheets up on the wall when it came time to do that, just, just mm -hmm. so I could, you know, figure out exactly how I was going to leapfrog back and forth between them. Okay, that's a good idea. So you'd sort of walk around and look at what the each plot was doing? Definitely, and I, I actually did that during the editing process too. So when I got notes from Barb, I actually had all of the, the sheets for each chapter. I had a sheet up on the wall, like right around my office. And, mm -hmm. and then whenever she identified a question or an issue, problem of some kind, I would put it on a particular colored sticky note and then I would put it, I'd stick it on that particular chapter where the problem was. And so slowly but surely, I would work my way through all the sticky notes, working them out. And then when all the sticky notes were gone, I knew I was <laughs> Well, and isn't it nice to have somebody that can look from the outside who's as skilled as Barb is to be able to do that for you and just ask questions to help you figure it out, right? I can't say enough about uh, the the amazing work Barb Howard did. She, you know, not mm -hmm. every writer is a good editor. I know Susan, you're an excellent editor. I I I wouldn't consider myself one. I I don't think I would take that on. But uh, but Barb is really really incredible. Like just knowing exactly what the questions are to ask, not to say, oh, you should do this and you should do that, and that's wrong and and that's wrong. Just just yeah. being able to ask those incisive questions is uh, is really a gift and. Uh, I just, I felt so lucky to, to work with her, just as I felt lucky that Freehand picked up the book. I mean, they were incredible to work with, just like and her. And it's a beautiful book, so, yeah. It's it's lovely, yes. Natalie Olson did the the that beautiful cover from, what is it? Kiss Cut Design is her company. Yeah. And, the, and the trees that factor so, um, you know, they loom so large in the, the narrative. It's nice to see those on the front page, though. So. Um, but anyway, um, so another question that I had was, 
all the Dutch traditions and the food and the sayings. I felt steeped in in your heritage, which I really enjoyed because I I mean I've known you for a lot of years and and I know a little bit about it, but I don't know a lot. So. Um, how did your parents pass down their heritage to you and how do you keep the traditions alive with your children? I would say the focal point through the year would be Sinterklaas and mm -hmm. Dutch people who are listening will know what I'm talking about. But that yeah. was a really key focus of, of our, our year in terms of celebrating Dutch traditions. So that happens on December 5th. And that's mm -hmm. when um, St. Nick, you know, St. Nicholas Sinterklaas comes to all the, mm -hmm. the homes in, uh, in the Netherlands and leaves treats and children's shoes nice. and uh, yeah and if you haven't been good then you have you, you find a switch in your shoe and then your parents are allowed to hit you with it so that, <laughs> wow. course, that never happened to us thank goodness but that's yeah. how we that's how we did it we would sing songs and, and my dad would write poems and and it was always such a great fun time for us and then of yeah. course as we had our kids then they we incorporated them into that special occasion um mm -hmm. But, but it was also my parents often would uh, would talk about added Dutch adages because the Dutch is a very colorful language when it comes to metaphors. And so they would often have this metaphorical phrase to to just, you know, pinpoint exactly what a situation was about. So uh, so, you know, that that was a gift from them as well to to be able to do that. I I got certainly some advice from them, but I also went searching online. You know, I mean, that World Wide Web is amazing. Right. So I I, I went for uh, Dutch adages on the, right. on the web and found right. many. Because you moved here when you were how old? I was six. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you've been in Canada most of your life. But did you speak Dutch when you arrived? We, yes, we, we did. I didn't speak, we didn't speak any English. None of us spoke any English. Maybe my dad knew a few words and that was it. Um, but uh, Dutch people are very good assimilators. So they, you know, they arrive in Canada and they go, we're Canadian now and we're going to speak English and we're going to do everything the Canadian way. And so that's what we did. My my mother, she read the paper every day to learn how to speak English. And so when we would come home from school, they would want us to teach them, you know, English uh, from okay. what we learned at school. So, yeah, we, we started. So I always say I feel like I, you know, I, I can understand Dutch very well and, and I can I can certainly get by. But I think I have about a six year old vocabulary. <laughs> I think I kind of got stuck there. It's, it's better than a lot of Canadians who only speak <laughs> English. <you know? laughs> but I think that's wonderful, though, because your your family are storytellers. And um, and obviously, they pass that on to you. So I think that's wonderful. And, and you are a very descriptive um, writer who uses a lot of metaphors. So that must be that must be part and parcel of your Dutch heritage. So, well, I, I can thank my parents for that, I think, because they were the, the original storytellers in our family. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so when um, I think we probably have time for one more reading from you. I think we had one more scheduled. So yeah. why don't we do that? And then we will finish up with a few questions and, uh, and we'll have another maybe a little sip of our, uh, our vino. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds okay. great. So this is another section, uh, another Daniel section. His mother had washed her father's hair the night before, but Opa liked to be bathed every morning to clear what he called his own sickly smell from his nostrils. Daniel brought two base, plastic basins of warm water into the room, one frothy from baby shampoo. He removed Opa's pajamas. His mother had doubled over a large washcloth and sewn up two of the open sides to make a sort of glove, like the kind that people in the Netherlands used to wash up with. 
Daniel slipped the washcloth over his hand and dipped it into the soapy basin. Opus said, now I'm not made of glass, so don't worry, you're going to break me. He said that every time Daniel washed him. Daniel smiled, I'll try not to remove too many layers of skin. A laugh erupted from deep in Opus' chest, but it deteriorated immediately into a gurgling cough. When he recovered, he said, my mother took a few layers off me once. Papa bought me a kid's dirt bike for my eighth birthday. I lost control, ended up in the mud hole behind the barn, full of cow piss and shit. He paused to catch his breath. Mama used the kitchen scrub brush and dish soap to clean me up, then hosed me down. Daniel laughed just as he had the other times Opa told him that story. He washed Opa with delicate, methodical strokes, keeping him covered as much as possible. He took special care not to jostle the tube that drew urine from his bladder. He worked around the bed sores that the nurse came to dress three times a week. Daniel noticed several new ones low down on his spine between his shoulder blades and on the back of his leg. Opa instructed him to daub them with a saline-soaked gauze pad and cover them with gel dressing. Daniel's heart skipped each time Opa winced from the pain. Then Daniel helped his grandfather into fresh pajamas and changed the sheets. Opa stayed quiet while he worked, patiently allowing Daniel to move his emaciated limbs as need be to get clothing and sheets around his body. Even after Daniel had cleared the room of the soiled linens and emptied the urine reservoir, the room still smelled sour, like grain left to rot in a wet field, tinged with the sweetness of fresh linen. There's something I want you to read, Opa said, still catching his breath from the bathing efforts. Longfellow is on the nightstand, page 52. Daniel picked up the book, worn and tattered, from a lifetime of being handled, read, and reread. This is so old school, Opa, he said, laughing. Don't you have a million books on your tablet? Opa answered, eyes closed, his voice slurring from fatigue. If the digital age hasn't killed paper books yet, it never will. Daniel said, you're not too tired? Opa raised and lowered his hand in response. The castle builder, Daniel read. A gentle boy with soft and silken locks, a dreamy boy with brown and tender eyes, a castle builder with his wooden blocks and towers that touch imaginary skies. A fearless rider on his father's knee, an eager listener unto stories told at the round table of the nursery of heroes and adventures manifold. There will be other towers for thee to build. There will be other steeds for thee to ride. There will be other legends and all filled with greater marvels and more glorified. Build on and make thy castles high and fair, rising and reaching upward to the skies. Listen to voices in the upper air, nor lose thy simple faith in mysteries. That's you, Opa said. He opened his roomy eyes, regarded Daniel intently. You have castles to build beyond this farm. You're always at the top of your class in science. I know you read every article you can on climate change and what it's doing to Alberta. Opa pointed to the window and then at the floor. You can make a bigger difference out there than you can here. Our family legacy is important, but if you can contribute to the greater good, you should do it. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, Opa's fault that Daniel and Will are fighting. <laughs> he's, a, he's a bit of a, you know what? <laughs> I, 
I really enjoyed actually the way you wove him into the story because he is a, um, a character from the past that shows up vividly in the present. So how did you do that? I, I know this is a flashback, but exactly how did you sort of paint him into the story and the narrative and, and the plot? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I started, uh, and I did this with with all my characters. I, I really tried to do a character sketch. I would, um, you know, there's there's those lists of question character building questions you can find online. You can find them everywhere. And I, mm -hmm. I did that for each of the characters. So that's what I started with for Opa as well. So I really had a good handle on who he was. Mm -hmm. um, but he, he appears fairly early in the story uh, in a, a flashback where Willa is actually quite young. And so so that kind of created a foundation for me for 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 what he was like. And mm -hmm. um, but all of that character building really helped. And then, you know, bringing him back sort of at, at um, strategic points in the story when he, you know, could have a big impact right on that particular character, and which makes mm -hmm. sense because we remember the people who have influenced us, you know, and, and remember those moments when they influenced us the most. And so that's kind of when when Opa comes back into the uh, into the story is when he you know when when he has a particular connection to the character in question. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like uh, you know a Yoda. <laughs> he's he's a truth sayer. He comes back when you need him the most. <laughs> oh, that. That's nobody's ever said that before. I like that one. He's just not little and green. That's all. <laughs> But uh, I see we're we're getting close to our um, forty-five minutes, so I, I wanted to ask maybe um, a final question. And um, what did you want your readers to take away from Watershed? Well, of course, um, you know readers always approach uh, books with their own particular sensibilities, and and so uh, um, I, you know I hope they find different things in there that might interest them. Um, some people might be interested in the climate change aspect and, and sort of the vision of what the future could look like um, in Alberta. Um, mm -hmm. Others might be more interested in the, the, the fam family saga part of it. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think, you know, everybody takes away a little something different, but, uh, but, you know, if, if, if this book can build a sense of urgency into people's view of what climate change is doing and, and about, and just about the preciousness of our water resources, then that would be very gratifying for me because that certainly is what happened to me doing the research for this book is, um, you know, I, I just, all of that became so clear to me, the, the, uh, the value of that, the, the glacial reservoirs of water that we have here, you know, they're, they're so precious and, and we need to do everything we can to protect our headwaters. So, mm -hmm. so we have that, you know, that water into the future. And uh, so, yeah, if, if that's something that people could take away from it, well, then I'd, I'd be thrilled. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you have added to the, the Cli-Fi uh, tradition. So, and, and I don't know if a lot of people know what Cli-Fi is yet, but, the, but they will, the more of these that are written, the, the more it gets out there. And I think the younger generation um, really, they, want to protect the earth for their future and having children you know we want to protect the earth for their future as well so i think it's it, it's a like the global mail said it's an urgent uh cli-fi tale so um anyway i think what we should do is probably um do a few housekeeping items before we sign off but i wanted to know just briefly um what is next for you in terms of writing mm. 
Well, right now um, I'm quite busy with uh, with the organization I'm the president of, which is Storytelling Alberta. And here in, in Calgary, we have um, a wonderful project on the go called Story Share by Phone, and it's where it's an outreach program for for isolated seniors. Of course, we're all isolated during the pandemic, but it, particularly for seniors, we're partnering with, partnering with the Calgary Seniors Resource Society. And so we call them with stories and we're and and they tell us their stories. And, and uh, so I'm also doing the legacy projects. I'm recording senior stories to, mm -hmm. to show the value of, uh, of the stories of our elders here in, in Calgary. So I'm very busy with that right now. Um, mm -hmm. Eventually, I hope to get on the road with this book again. Who knows mm -hmm. when that will happen? But <laughs> yeah, 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 it's hard, hard to say. Uh, yeah. but, but in terms of writing, I, I would actually like to look back for my next project because I, I have um, a character in mind that I um, had from a short story that was published in Prairie Fire magazine. And she uh, lives in uh, 1939, 1940 is where, is where the story takes place in uh, Banff. And so I'd love to go back and, and revisit her character and extend that into, uh, into a longer story. So that's, that's my plan for the fall is to dive into a little bit of historical fiction this time. Oh, good. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, I think before we go, I should thank again the Writers Guild of Alberta for hosting this reading and the Rose Foundation for their support, plus, of course, our audience for their um, attention. And um, I need to talk briefly about the next uh, reading, which is July the 7th at 7 p.m. with Karen Pheasant Neganagwani, reading from her new book, Pow Wow, A Celebration Through Song and Dance. And of course, thanks again to you, Doreen, for sharing your book with us and your time tonight. But I, I did want to leave with, um, how do you say cheers in Dutch? Prost. 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 <laughs> cheers. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to the Writers Guild of Alberta for supporting Alberta writers. They do such an amazing job. Thank you so much. They do. Well, and I hope to see you soon. And everybody have a great Canada Day tomorrow. And take care and stay safe. All right. Happy Canada Day. Bye. <laughs>